Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenters in today's episode are Cameron Brooks and Dan Reed. Together, we'll be taking a deep dive on the topic of worldview. We'll talk about what it means to have a biblical worldview and what the right assumptions about reality really are. We'll also talk about how to process and talk about other people's worldviews with charity and accuracy. We'll also preview the shift in Titus 2 from authority in the church to the faithful lives of the church's members. Well, Pastor Mark, you have published a book on the topic of worldview, and you just returned from Worldview Academy. Worldview seems to be something that you know a lot about, so I thought, well, can I take the opportunity to pick your mind a little bit and and talk with you about it? So maybe you can set up first what got you interested in this topic, and then what is Worldview Academy? What are you doing during these teaching sessions? In the Reformed tradition, there's an emphasis, I guess going back at least as far as Abraham Kuyper, to the idea of like having a Christian world and life view. This original insight is, is basically that Christianity is going to influence every area of life, not just the so-called you know, sacred sphere. So it's in contrast to this very sort of modernist idea of religion as a privatized experience, where we can see that, that Christianity, like any system of belief is going to speak to uh, government, economics, literature, art, all of these different areas in various ways, going to influence the way we think about those things. And so I was exposed to that idea, I suppose it would have been in my teens sometime. It had kind of become popular by then. We had to read a, a book as freshmen in college about worldview, although it was not the best introduction, I don't think. But, uh, but you know, that, that idea kind of went mainstream and, and, of course, in doing so, jumped out of Reformed theology into sort of the broader church culture. And like a lot of things that make that leap, it left its context behind. And so... When people talk about worldview, they say a lot of helpful things and then occasionally also some not very helpful things. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote my book, Rethinking Worldview, what I was trying to do was maybe, I guess, sort through, you know, which are the valuable parts and and which are the ones to, to be wary of. And that really arose out of the work I've done for, I guess, 20 years or so at Worldview Academy, which is a academic leadership camp for teenagers where we talk about worldview issues as well as leadership and apologetic stuff. And I've mainly taught worldview, theology, literature, arts, that kind of thing in that context. Cool. So what are some hot or relevant worldview issues that you've been talking about with students over the, the summer? Okay, so that's a great question because one of the things I talk about a lot is is how important it is not to 
orient yourself around hot topics. <laughs> yeah, I was you trying know. to set you up. Because yeah. I, I think there's oftentimes when people, especially when you think of this sort of worldview stuff, mm-hmm. uh, if I show up to a worldview event, but then we actually just end up me giving you my hot takes on whatever people are outraged about today, that kind of thing. I think that plays more into the problem than contributing to a solution because the reason why we're so susceptible to these cultural influences day in and day out is because we don't have that grounding in a biblical perspective on the various aspects of reality. If we're not already thinking about those things, from a foundation informed by the Bible, then, yeah, you will find yourself being blown about by every controversy and not sure like how to think clearly or, or, or where your heart should be in certain issues. And so I think what we try to do, certainly what I try to do in teaching worldview, is to um, hit the pause button on outrage of the week and go back to first principles and try to build from there and look at the, you might almost think like the, the tectonic stuff, you know, the plates underneath the surface that end up having a lot more influence than whatever rumbling there happens to be in the culture at this Mm -hmm. moment. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good. I've, I've heard of worldview defined as your answers to the most fundamental questions. That's not a specifically Christian way of putting it, but it does, it leaves room for non-believers who of course have worldviews or other religions. Everyone has some answer to these kinds of these big questions. Is there truth? Where do we get the truth? Um, why do I exist? You know, where, where, where are we going? Those kinds of questions. Do you think that's a helpful way of thinking about it? Or would you rather start somewhere else? I mean, I think it's helpful. That's, that's sort of, let's say like the traditional approach. So if you go look at James Sire's book, the universe next door, which just recently released a new edition, it takes that kind of approach. You know, there's some fundamental questions, any worldview needs to answer And if we look at the way that these rival worldviews answer these questions, we can see the differences between them. And I think that's, that's very helpful. It's, it's especially helpful for uh, students trying to understand like the difference between Christianity and other philosophies that can be helpful. Although of course that analysis is only as good as the perceptiveness of the person who's filling in those blanks. And so you may have, you know, two different Christians who would answer those fundamental questions differently based on their understanding. And, and occasionally, well, not occasionally, I'll, I'll, I'll say often it is the case that when we represent other people's perspectives and how they would answer those questions, we don't always do it charitably or accurately. And so you've got to be a little careful with those things to make sure that when you are representing another perspective, you do it in a way that people who believe that would actually recognize, you know, and so that it's a, it's a good path. It's sort of the traditional path. I don't necessarily think it's, it's the, the one that I would take because I, I imagine maybe let's say a simpler, more organic path where when I think about a worldview, especially a biblical worldview, the, the starting point for me is, Uh, If I go back to Kuiper's lectures, um, Stone lectures, 
where he lays out this idea of specifically of Calvinism as a world and life view. He does it with uh, what we could call anachronistically epistemic humility, but he's not saying what you'll often hear people say, like, like Christianity is the only coherent worldview known to man. If you were just smart and logical, you would see that this is the only option. Mm -hmm. What he's actually doing is looking at a variety of belief systems that people at that time took for granted were robust world and life views and arguing, yeah, so is this. So he's trying to demonstrate that this has the fullness that these other things have as as well. And so the obviously, you know, he he would argue for more than that. Mm -hmm. But he's he's starting, I think, with modest goals and and I want to reflect that in my approach. And also for me, what matters is not so much the abstract philosophical ways in which we conceptualize, like what is your answer to the question, what is truth or what have you, but rather uh, to take more of a, a textual approach. If you read the Bible, the Bible's written by many different inspired human authors, and those authors, you know, they, they have the words they've put down on paper, but then there are the assumptions behind those words, right? In order to have written what they wrote, they had to see the world a certain way. They had to make certain assumptions about reality. And at the most fundamental level, before the, let's say, the philosophical questions really kick in, there's this other question of just, like, how would I need to see the world to be able to see it their way, like to understand what they're writing for more or less their context. Mm -hmm. Now, as readers, it's something every good reader does with any text. There's a, uh, a way you approach the text where you submit yourself to the text, to the authority of the, the writer, and you try to see things the way the writer does uh, temporarily. You may disagree completely, but you enter into it Right? You take it on, you try on that way of seeing in order to understand it as it's intended. And that's the way you read charitably. And so if you read scripture that way, you immediately start to recognize some differences between the way you see things and the way scripture sees them. You wouldn't write the way the Bible does if you saw things in a 21st century naturalistic way, right? Obviously, there are some assumptions there. I mean, the, the authors assume a created world. Mm -hmm. They assume a world where the creator didn't just make things, but continues to order them and rule over them. Right? There's an intelligibility and a sovereignty to that world that's, that's really alien from the way that most people today would look at reality. There's an assumption of rationality behind it all. The idea that a God so transcendent as the God of the Bible could come down and enter into a relationship with human beings as finite and fallen as human beings are, and that it would be possible for us to have real knowledge of him despite those differences, all of that presupposes that you can tell the truth in words, that human beings, despite their limited faculties, can understand a, f uh, a form of that truth, you know, that it's possible to communicate. And also, 
obviously throughout Scripture there's an assumption that all of us, every created thing, owes a debt of worship to God, and that that's the the right orientation of all things towards God. Now, if you don't share those assumptions, you're not looking at the world the way the Bible does. And for me, that's a great place to start for thinking about the idea of a biblical view of reality, just trying to uncover those assumptions that oftentimes are, it's not, this isn't doctrine, right? This is what's underneath doctrine, kind of the necessary preconditions for doing theology, we might say. Yeah. I've got a couple things to say there. One comment about what you said earlier about how worldview thinking is is meant to be charitable in the sense that you're trying to step into the shoes of some other writer who perhaps shares different assumptions about reality from you. That to me is a different approach to worldview than what I'm familiar with because what I often see, especially from Christians, is that worldview is like a box of, of beliefs. And here you're, you know, this is the Christian lens through which we see the world. And what matters about other people is if they have this same lens or box of beliefs. If they do, they're on our side, thumbs up, bring them into the classroom, have them, you know, give a lecture. If they're not, then we need to either discount everything they say or spend our time critiquing them and showing, you know, here's why this worldview is, is wrong. And, and that has always, that's bothered me because something we talk about in this podcast is general revelation, how people who don't share all of your assumptions might actually have some access to truth and, and obviously do have some access to truth, but might even have some access to truth that, that you don't. So this is the case in, in philosophy where, where Christians have learned from non-Christian philosophers, or this is the case in medicine where, you know, many of our doctors don't believe the same things. So I I like your idea of what you're saying about being charitable. Um, Do you have anything to say there? I've got another question, but. Well, I think, you know, it's a very, you know, Christian thing in the, in the best sense of the word, because if we affirm that all truth is God's truth, then we have to agree with Calvin, who said that the truth should not be despised no matter its source, Mm -hmm. that the Holy Spirit is responsible for the truth we find in Scripture, but also in nature. And even if we encounter the truth in a um, in an unlikely source, that we should receive it as a gift from God. And that's true whether it's uh, you know coming from a believer or an unbeliever, because all human beings are made in God's image. God's common grace is in operation throughout creation, and it is a fundamentally optimistic orientation, Mm -hmm. I think, to recognize that despite our best efforts to suppress the truth, God is constantly at work in the most unlikely places. Awesome. So the next question is about literature. You mentioned that you teach some literature at Worldview Academy, and I'm curious what you see to be the relationship between literature and worldview. A lot of early worldview pedagogy in Christian circles, is influenced by Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer really saw art 
uh, with a capital A, you know, literature, painting, whatever, <laughs> as let's say like a diagnostic, right? Like if you want to know what's wrong with the patient, you know, you look at their phlegm, <laughs> you know, if you want to know what's wrong with the culture, you look at their art. Mm. And so it's not unusual to see people interested in cultural critique or cultural analysis using works of art to diagnose problems and also as an illustration for uh, philosophical ideas, you know, because Schaefer had that sense of kind of the, the way that, that culture is downstream from philosophy. And so, you know, ideas will begin in the philosopher's mind and they'll enter into the arts and they'll enter into the culture and eventually the church will catch up kind <laughs> of a, kind of a thing. And so, uh, for, for myself though, as a writer, I think that's, that's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't quite go far enough because if we stop there, then what we're doing as Christians is just working on being increasingly sophisticated cultural critics and cultural critics are still known for what they're against Ultimately, as human beings, we've been made, created to do more than criticize. We've been created to contribute to the world, to cultivate, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need to be creative ourselves. And so I don't want to just use works of art as a diagnostic tool, but also to appreciate them as the highest expression in some sense, at least the highest portable and studyable expression of the human mandate to cultivate the raw material of creation. And so I find that both of those things are worthwhile, but I try to emphasize that creativity because I think a lot of the, the sort of, let's say the negative themes that you sometimes hear and people talking about worldview, those come from a, a sense of anxiety about the world, the direction of the world. You know, a lot of people are attracted to uh, this talk about having a Christian worldview because they're anxious that the Christian worldview is in peril, that it's not being passed down to others, that it's under a constant attack. And out of that anxiety and fear, they cling to uh, sometimes oversimplistic and bombastic statements about the rationality of Christianity. And, and you know, if you, if you would just do your due diligence, you'd see this is all true. You know, be smart and join us. Where, honestly, I think the best worldview thinking doesn't come from anxiety. It comes from confidence. You know, if you really do share that foundation with the biblical authors, then you have a very confident view of reality. You believe in a created world that is still superintended by its maker and that will ultimately be restored by him to be what it was made to be. And there's not a lot of room for anxiety and fear in that equation. And so our cultural work, our cultural contribution doesn't need to be done in anxiety. And it can be done in hope. And so that's where I try to be. You know, I'm as susceptible <laughs> to 
you know, negativity as, as anyone, uh, maybe more than most, <laughs> but theologically speaking, I've got good reason to feel differently. I like that. So people call what you're talking about culture wars. Yes. And for good reason, perhaps. There's, a, there's an artist and author who happens to be a Christian named Mako Fujimura that some listeners may have heard of before. He, he came up with a different term he coined, and I believe he titled a book, Culture Care, which he is, of course, juxtaposing with culture wars. So he, he's advocating for sort of just what you're talking about that the Christian's responsibility is not so much to get down in the weeds of all of these granular culture wars very loudly, but to care for the culture primarily by creating. And he, he agrees with you that this is, this is a, an expression of our cultural mandate to care for the world in very concrete ways. And so he, he calls all people, not just artists, though he he's himself an artist all people to create in some way to to build things up rather than just to tear down other people's arguments or defend what we have going so i read his book art plus faith is what it's called it came out just this last year i would recommend people go check that out if they're interested in in a deeper dive yeah he's he's been thinking about these things for a while and i think is really valuable to to look at in uh the Final chapter of Rethinking Worldview, I talk about this idea of cultural contribution, mm. which is similar, I think, to what he has in mind with, with culture care. And I think, you know, it's not that there's no place at all for some of the things we often file under the heading of culture war. You know, if, if you were doing apologetics, if you're doing, you know, politics from a biblical point of view or whatever some of your activities may look like culture war things, although I'd argue even then they can be done um, without at least some of the, the negative aspects of that term. But the problem is when as a community, that's all you're doing, you know, when all you're doing is critique and all, all that you're doing is naysaying and you're not contributing, you find yourself in this strange situation where everybody knows what you're against, but nobody knows what you're for. And as Christians, that's not a place we want to be. You know, I think that it is important for us not only to articulate what our problem is with the world or with ourselves, mm -hmm. but also to articulate the positive you know, and that, that's the positive of the hope that we have in Christ, but also the positive of what the Bible says about what human beings were made for, what the value of human beings is, what our, our God-given task is. All of those things are, are rich and profound. And if we're not talking about those things because we're too busy focusing solely on the political battles of the moment— then what happens is it becomes increasingly difficult for your kids to understand what you're even fighting for because the inheritance isn't being passed down. So I think you've got to start with the positive and you've got to start with, you know, what is this valuable thing that you are hoping people will discover? 
And when you see the beauty of that, it becomes understandable why people would sacrifice to, to, to share it. Mm -hmm. But until you see that beauty, it's, it's hard to understand what all of the, the passion is about. And so I think the more we can hold on to a sense of the, the glory and the beauty and the confidence of the gospel, the better we'll be at engaging these worldview questions in a culture that increasingly like, is looking for answers like this, but does not want to find them where they are. This Sunday, Dan Reed will continue his sermon series on Titus. This is a short epistle, but it's packed with profound insights. Before we wrap up this episode, I want to talk with Dan about Titus 2 and what we can do to prepare in advance for Sunday's sermon. So Dan, this Sunday you'll be preaching on Titus chapter 2, and I was just wondering how people should prepare before hearing this second sermon in your series. Uh, always uh, read the text beforehand. I mean, it's almost, uh, sometimes I forget to say that, um, but the first thing to do is read the text and try and understand what's going on inside the text. And, you know, I was really encouraged when you preached the first sermon. I had conversations with uh, several people who mm -hmm. really had done that and had already read the text and meditated on it. And I think it really helps to to come into the sermon already having that that word fresh in your mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the hope is that we can, uh, as I preach the sermon, um, that you can use that in your own study. So then you can go back to chapter one and you can reread the chapter one and say, okay, does this line up with what uh, was spoken this morning? Um, and then if it doesn't, that would be a great time to ask, well, what's going on here? And talk to people about it. Talk to me about it. Uh, but then it also should help gear up for the next sermon, that these should be connected, that in Paul's mind, there aren't chapter breaks. Uh, this was to be read to a church in one sitting, in one setting. And so as we go from chapter one into chapter two, read chapter one and chapter two, make sure that the flow is going the right direction. And uh, that should help prepare you for chapter two. So it'd probably not be a bad idea as well to listen to the first sermon again, mm. to have that fresh in your mind. That's something I always like to do when I'm preaching on a Sunday morning. I'll listen to the last sermon in the series again so that I, number one, so I don't repeat myself, but number yeah. two, just to to pick up the threads of that thought, like you're saying, to remember it's all connected. Yeah, yeah. So another thing that would be good for people to do, and we didn't mention this earlier, but we did when we started Zechariah, is the Bible Project. Yes. Bible Project makes great summary videos of all the books of the Bible. And if you haven't already gone and watched the summary video on Titus, we would suggest that you go and do that now. Uh, catch up on that. It's about eight minutes long, and it gives you a nice overview of the book. You'll recognize some of the things that we've been talking about, and it'll give you uh, an orientation in the text that we're studying. I think it's really helpful to have that all in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And it 
it does such a great job of pulling in some of the cultural pieces, uh, talking about Zeus, uh, talking about the Cretans. I call them Cretans. I need to stop that. It's Cretans. So um, we, we maybe sh we should have a running uh, list of corrections, right? Because oh, yeah. you earlier told us that Crete was the largest island in the Mediterranean. Right. It's not. Nope. Uh, just the largest Greek island, right? Right, yeah. And now you've confused us by calling the Cretans the Cretans. Right. And so are you on the record? Yep. Th what's the official pronunciation? It's Cretans. Cretans, yep. okay. And the Cretans, we don't even know. I don't even know who those people are. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're probably liars, though. Right. But, they, yeah. It wouldn't surprise <laughs> me some Cretans went around saying, we're really called Cretans. Yeah, that's probably what it is. They're all liars. Yeah. So, and then uh, we'll just add any errors that come up any mm. corrections you want to make we can just uh do them here on the podcast well i mean that that's great and that's sort of kind of the idea of an internship right is yes. uh, i come in and i make all my mistakes so that i get them out of my system perfect but, perfect yeah i wish i wish i had gotten all of my mistakes out of my system <laughs> before i found myself here but so let me ask you this there's a continuity between chapter one and chapter two but mm -hmm. we're also shifting gears a little bit so can you explain to us how the focus shifts mm -hmm. in this second series or second sermon in the series? Yeah. Um, the way that I have it sort of laid out in my brain is that chapter one is setting kind of the foundation and the structure uh, that we have the overseers and the elders and we see who they are and what they're to do, kind of providing that order for the garden. Uh, but in chapter two, we transition and now we're looking at the garden itself or looking inside. And so it's sort of that blueprint of the inside, the members of the church. And what does their behavior look like? Where does their motivation come from? Uh, and then why do they do what they do? Um, and so we're kind of moving from the, the structure to the inside of the building. Okay. And so this is where we're going to hit like the sound doctrine mm. point, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that comes up multiple times in our passage and looking at sound doctrine. Uh, but it's interesting because a lot of Paul says you need to teach sound doctrine. And then he talks a lot about behavior in this passage. So we're going to look at sound doctrine and how that relates to Christian behavior. I love that because so often we we put those in different silos. Mm. You have people who are interested in doctrine and people who are interested in, in you know, practice or ethics or whatever. And Paul just doesn't do it that way. I mean, mm -hmm. he sees the uh, interwoven nature of the doctrine and the life that it produces. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. Uh, when Paul was just coming out of the false teachers, uh, the big line that he has is they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And, and this is the, the big crux of the issue is they, they may say they know God, they, they call themselves believers, but they're not. They're, what did he say? Uh, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Uh, he doesn't pull any punches. Uh, but Christians are to be different. They are to profess God and then show that they know God by their works. Fantastic. Well, thanks for giving us that orientation. And we look forward to hearing the second sermon in the series this Sunday. Excellent. That's all the time we have for now. Thank you, Cameron, and thank you, Dan. And thanks to you, our listeners. We appreciate you spending this time with us. We're truly grateful. We hope you'll join us next time. And in the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. 
You can subscribe to the Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsuefalls.org.